Welcome to the Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young. As the nights draw in, it's wonderful to look to our gardens for spots of colour and interest, especially in this world of lockdowns and more time at home. I find this time of year as important in some ways as spring. There is clearly the changing of the season, of light levels and the amount of wildlife activity in an autumn garden. But I genuinely love the oscillations of autumn, the cold and misty mornings, the snatches of bright sunshine that make you want to go outside, the damp or seemingly endless rain sometimes. And in November's edition of The Garden magazine, we want to provide that ray of light and inspiration you need to keep you feeling passionate about your outside space. One way to create long-lasting interest in your garden is by using grasses. Their sense of movement and see-through nature can prove an irresistible draw for garden visitors. Particularly in autumn, the combination of delicate grasses and the oranges and yellows of deciduous trees and shrubs is enough to make anyone fall in love with the natural world. I really like using grasses at my home and have spoken to various experts over the years to get their recommendations. And I do feel the grasses are much underused by gardeners. Around our exposed and rather windy patio here on a hill in Northamptonshire, I have lots of low-growing and billowing Stiper tenuissima, which give a lovely texture and soft brownie beige colour that links to our limestone walls. And also, along the pond, I have some rather old, but always really dependable, circular mounds of bronze-leaved Carex comans. I genuinely wouldn't be without grasses in any of my gardens. In this month's magazine, we put them centre stage with a big feature on Knoll Gardens. This RHS partner garden in Dorset has many beautiful displays full of intriguing ornamental species. It's really worth a look, especially the photographs by John Campbell. Neil Lucas is the owner and knows a thing or two about what an impact grasses can make. I spoke to him to find out more about the importance of these plants in an autumn garden. So my interest is in growing plants and the nursery is a sort of business that has developed. There wasn't really a nursery when we arrived here. So it's something that we've created more or less from scratch. What was it about grasses in particular? Did you know much or have a personal passion for grasses when you took the garden on or has it grown because of the garden? In actual fact, my first interest, my first love is woody plants, trees and shrubs. And I came to know my particular interest at that time was that there were just so many beautiful trees and shrubs. I just loved the idea. I did have a collection of about 50 or so grasses at that time because I was working down in Devon, working in a big new projects, lots of woody plants, and I found that grasses next to woody plants were present and most useful in the landscape for the longest period of time. So I was aware of them, I was becoming aware of how useful they were, how exciting they were, but the time that we arrived here at Knoll, I had no intention of being a specialist nursery or growing grasses. And it seems to me grasses seem to go in and out of fashion. In the 1970s, there was a pampas grass. And then in sort of the 90s and the 2000s, the new perennial movement by Pete Aldolf and people with the champsias. And, and then suddenly you don't really see grasses for a few years. And 
then they suddenly come back into fashion. What is it about the ebb and flow of grasses in people's gardens that you think makes them sometimes fashionable, sometimes not? I think that actually more than that, I think it's actually people's understanding and access to those particular groups of plants. Something that is fashionable, for example, whether it's a grass or anything else, tends to be overused and then people stand back after a few years and think, ugh, why did we do that? Take them out. Pampas perhaps being a perfect example. But rather than grow grasses going out of fashion I think what that reflects is you know we knew pampas it was fantastic we stuck it everywhere suddenly deschampsia was the in thing and so we started to use that everywhere and not everywhere did it work deschampsia and come to that pampas is still a very beautiful plant but it doesn't fit the bill on every occasion I think what we've seen over the 20, 30 years, the last 20, 30 years, is that our palette and our understanding of grasses, the number that we can use in our gardens and have access to, has expanded. And so our knowledge and our understanding of those groups has grown with it. The assumption is that it's always autumn, the best time for grasses. Do you agree with that? There is a peak time. So if I looked at my garden here, peak time is September and October and into November these days. That is partly because of the trees and the shrubs as well. So that is a crescendo, a highlight. But of course, there are grasses that are, you know, evergreen that do well in shade. There's the Hakonicloas around the bases. They're good from about March, April onwards. So in fact, grasses can be found, such a wide family, to be looking good in gardens almost 12 months of the year but in our particular case because of the combination of trees and shrubs autumn is the crescendo the high point but let's face it Chris so many of our gardens are as wonderful in spring a little bit dodgy come summer and then we don't talk about the autumn giving autumn its due place in the gardening calendar I think is quite a worthwhile cause in itself so quick fire questions Best grass for shade. <laughs> um, so out of my sweet shop, you want me to go and choose my favourite yes, flavour? So basically I'm asking you to have that maybe something. Okay. <laughs> if you could have 30 children well, um, and I'm choosing you to choose the best okay. three. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's stick to grasses. Yeah. Um, basically, a lot of the Carex are great for shade, full stop, because, you know, so much depends. Gardeners will obviously appreciate, you know, it depends on what shade as to which. If you've got really dry shade, you know, something just about everything dice kerex ice dance is perhaps the one sedge grass that i've come across that is almost indestructible so that would probably have to be the number one recommendation for shade if i had to choose yes one. well you there's a theme here you're going to have <laughs> to now choose another one for maybe a small space maybe like a corner by in a pot or maybe by a back door or something yeah, yeah. Well, again, Carex would work. But actually, I quite like the idea of Cezlarias. Uh, they're not new grasses, but they're new to UK gardeners. And there are some lovely ones. And the one I was thinking of in particular was Cezlaria Spring Dream, which is sort of, you know, bluey grey foliage most of the year round, nice flowers in the spring, small, dainty, long lived, easy care, looks good and doesn't require much attention. <laughs> sounds, like the, sounds like the perfect person. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll marry it. Um, and then... The, 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 I'm sure we can arrange it. I hadn't thought of that. It's probably illegal. Um, and then the other question is, what grass would you choose if somebody wanted to make a really big impact with a grass? A big Im Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess... I say you have to go. You don't have to go from Miscanthus, but yeah, they are amongst the biggest grasses that we can grow in the UK. And I wonder whether something like Malepartus is probably... It's still one of the older... It's been around for a while, hasn't it? 
It's been around for a while, but it's still the standard by which many others are judged. It stands straight and tall. The purple flowers are just fantastic. It has enthusiasm, which is just fantastic to see. And if, you know, the colour flower and the shape wasn't enough, the autumn foliage colours are absolutely superb and a definite part of the autumn scene. I really enjoyed talking to Neil, as I often do. He's my go-to expert if I ever need some advice on grasses, and his passion is clear to hear. But Neil isn't the only expert gracing the publication this month. We have Roy Lancaster sharing his autumn glories from his home in Hampshire. Jonathan Webster, curator of RHS Garden Rosemore in Devon, talks about tree health. Botanist Barry Clark on Euonymus, Anissa Gress goes exploring for salads underground, and Rachel Detaine applauds great bone structure in winter gardens. One other article I wanted to highlight is by Deputy Editor Phil Clayton. He's penned a big seven-page piece for us, all about London's gardens under glass. He profiles three green spaces that are hidden pieces of sanctuary in the capital the Crossrail Place Roof Garden in Canary Wharf, the Sky Garden that sits on the top of the skyscraper known as the Walkie Talkie Building, and the Barbican's Conservatory. They are all impressive in their own and unique ways. I actually had the idea for this article a while ago. I wanted us to shine a light into well-planted and interesting design responses to greening up a city. Thankfully, Phil was really keen to go along and explore new ideas in the cityscape. My relationship with greenery and city spaces is, in truth, it's fairly limited. I live in a city now, I live in Peterborough, but it's a very small city. But I did used to live in Surrey, which was about 30 minutes on the tube from London. I spent a lot of my sort of formative years, really, in London and spent a lot of time going around some of those green spaces. Kew Gardens is one of my favourite places that I used to visit. Richmond Park, I used to spend an awful lot of time there when I, I was young. When I was younger, I remember going to the Derry and Tom's Roof Garden in Kensington, St James's Park, Hyde Park, all the London parks. So, yeah, I do have a, definitely have a relationship with them, and I've always found, particularly in London, the kind of open space is quite interesting because of the, the range of stuff you can grow there because of the mild microclimate. You see all kinds of plants thriving that you might not find anywhere else in the UK. It's quite clear now that greenery in city is, is a really important thing. It, it traps pollutants, they help to cool the city. Planting generally helps to mitigate uh, flooding and helps to, especially flash flooding, it helps to slow down the, the flow of water through the system so you get less chances of flooding. And I think also it's as much about well-being as anything. It, it just, it's just nicer, isn't it, seeing greenery and softening of, of hard buildings and I think if some of that greenery and some of these gardens are actually sort of run by local communities, there's local community involvement, then obviously it helps community cohesion. And I think that is a really important thing, is increasingly important. So there's loads of good reasons for having open space and greenery in, in our cities. The Barbican and Crossrail really do seem to make a difference to people's lives. The head gardener at the Barbican was saying that the regular visitors that they get are people actually 
who may not be native to London, but they're going there to remind themselves of some of their cultural heritage. It's, it's such an interesting place to walk around. And then the conservatory for me is sort of the jewel in the crown, really. It's a really huge space. It's three, at least three stories high, the actual glass house itself. And it sort of is constructed around this central fly tower, which is the fly tower for the Barbican Theatre, which is below. And they drop scenery and props and things from this fly tower. And so they've got this huge structure on which to grow plants. So you get things like Swiss cheese plants and philodendrons and things scaling up the side of this tower going up stories and stories just like they would do in in the jungles growing up tree trunks and things i don't know anywhere else in the uk where these plants are allowed to get so big and so impressive as that yeah it's a glorious spectacle actually I noticed at the Crossrail, you know, just how many people were going for a stroll. They're obviously office workers from Canary Wharf. Some of them were spending their lunchtime there, perhaps having sandwiches or sitting down and reading a book in some of the seating areas. It's definitely a respite from the sort of busy everyday city life. I think you see that in a lot of the bigger parks too, don't you, in St James's Park and, and Hyde Park. People using it as a, a way of escaping from busy day to day and sort of almost a meditative space, I suppose, in some cases. Getting more greenery into the city is is a major challenge, I think, but it, it seems to be that we're pushing a bit of an open door now. Phil Clayton. One thing we do like to do in the garden is to celebrate visionaries who've had a big impact on the world of growing. In this month's issue, we look at scientist and horticulturist John Evelyn. This year is the 400th anniversary of his birth, and he's well known for being a founding member of the Royal Society in 1660, and he was also a very early advocate of sustainable forest management. This really is a fascinating article, as I've learned so much about John's impact on the horticultural and arboricultural world. The concepts he was advocating, from landscape architecture to forest management, were way ahead of their time. His knowledge or writing may not be referenced by every gardener every day, but the more you look, the more relevant and prescient his work was. I spoke to writer and garden historian Amber Edwards, who put together the piece on John Evelyn to find out more about the life of this 17th century polymath. Today he's best remembered as a diarist, and he was a friend of the more famous Pepys. But he kept a diary in a rather different way. So whereas Pepys wrote daily, Evelyn tended to write in bursts, sometimes recollecting things at a distance. So in some ways his diary reads more like a memoir. And it's certainly a lot tamer. You're not going to find Evelyn with his hand up his maidservant skirt. He's much more likely to be studying classical sculpture or, or trying to grow trees from seed. Pepys actually writes of Evelyn, perhaps he found him a bit dull, he said he must be allowed for a little conceitedness, but he may well be so, being a man so much above the others. So he was very well regarded in his time. Mm. And one of the things that made me laugh is that that writes about a journey that he took with with Evelyn when they'd been off to Greenwich to look at ships or something, and at which point he took the opportunity to show Pepys his gardens. And Pepys is really excited about them and says that, which they are with a variety of 
evergreens and hedges of holly, the finest things I ever saw in my life. And then talks about how they ride back in the carriage and they talk about gardening and they talk about vegetables and exchange their views on on trees. But Evelyn never mentions it. It obviously went straight out of his mind or he didn't (laughs) consider it worth recording. (laughs) So he does seem to have been, you know, quite this Renaissance man, but without any of that wonderful, you know, Italian uh, sobrezzatura. I mean, he was a very serious-minded chap. He he translates French gardening books, also Greek philosophical pamphlets. One of the more interesting things that he wrote was this book called Fumifugium, or the inconvenience of the air and smoke of London dissipated, in which he expresses his concern about the the sooty, smelly air of London, and and he suggests that sweet-smelling trees should be planted to purify the air and and that sort of smellier industries like tanning and and things that are heavily smoke-generating should be moved out of the city. So it's extraordinarily prescient. So he, he has this idea of something that's a bit like a green belt, that you surround the city with fields and with woods and that you plant these fields with, with violets and gilly flowers and all these things that are going to smell lovely. In terms of the um, the gardening world, the horticultural world, and the reason why we got you to do the article, it's probably his relationship and his understanding of trees and forestry. And as you say in the article, his silver book is still in print in various versions even today. Where and why did he have such a passion for trees? In some ways, it's a scientific inquiry. Silver comes out as the result of a commission of inquiry um, conducted by the Royal Society at the request of the commissioners of the Navy. And the Navy are hugely concerned that Britain is running out of timber. And to put it in its context, you know, timber is essentially the, you know, the fossil fuel of, of the generally. 70s. So just the as we, economy. you know, just the 20th century had repeated concerns that we were running out of oil, we were running out of gas and that the whole of life would grind to a halt. These are the concerns that are occupying the 17th century and particularly the Navy because there's been no replanting during the Civil War. To be without trees is not only inconvenient but it, it represents a major loss of economic and, and strategic power. So following this sort of commission or or committee that he's run, this feeds into the book Silver, which is published in 1664. And it's actually the first book, the first publication to be made by the Royal Society. And in that planting trees, he exhorts all good Englishmen and true, you know, to plant trees as a mm. as a patriotic duty. Yeah. So he he clearly does. So the grand tour goes around Europe, looking and, and being influenced by Italian gardens. So does he have any diary or notes about the ones he visited oh, or what he particularly liked? And, yeah, and he takes very very detailed notes on the places that he visits. So he writes about, oh, the Pitty Palace and Bobbly Gardens, oh, really? and, you okay, know, all wow. these great gardens in, in France and Italy. And he's absolutely impressed by this. When he comes home to England, he makes first a garden for himself and then he made one for his brother and another neighbour in Surrey that includes some of these features of jokes and fountains and grottos and so on. It's astonishing how many of those things that we now take for granted in gardens are things that he brings back or that he develops. So just things like, you know, having axes 
through the garden, intersecting axes that give us views and routes through the garden. You know, the practice of dividing up the, the garden space with mm. hedges, with terraces, with stonework, balustrades, features like pergolas that we drape climbers over. You know, and, and as we've mentioned before, the use of evergreens and especially topiary. I mean, you know, there was there was a great tradition of topiary in this country already. But it's using topiary in perhaps a more sophisticated way and in a way that's still incredibly current. I mean, the current vogue for the green garden. He's bringing that in. He claims to be the first person to use you for topiary, which is it's quite strange to think of that, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, yeah, and also how we use ornament you know that, that we take it as red you know we aren't surprised to see classical statues or putty or dolphins or urns or obelisks you know all this and then then things that for example that we're all very drawn i think now to the idea of a, a secret garden and mm. that again is something that's very popular in the in the italian renaissance garden so you know all kinds of ideas I think the great thing to take from him is that he wrote with great conviction about the need to keep replanting. In many ways, he's the first person to write to a popular audience about sustainability. And I think it's remarkable that that mm. message was so strongly made all those centuries ago. If we take nothing else from him, we should take that. It was fascinating talking to Ambra, as she's so insightful and dispenses her historical knowledge so well. Now, in today's show, we've talked about the people and the gardens that inspire us, but these would be nothing without the plants themselves. In this month's magazine, broadcaster Michael Perry looks at an interesting succulent known as the Mangave. They're a group of rather dramatic hybrids that are great both indoors and outdoors, and are really growing in popularity across the country. I spoke to Michael to find out why he thinks mangaves are marvellous. Well, mangava are one of my favourite new plants because it is, it's just incredible. It's like a giant outdoor succulent. It has this really exotic kind of vibe to it, but it's also really, really easy to grow. And across the whole network of varieties, there are so many different ones as well. There's spots stripes there's big ones small ones there's even a variety that is called bad hair day <laughs> so mangava almost appeared by accident it was actually a manfreda which pollinated and hybridized with an agave celsii and this actually happened randomly on a nursery in texas in the u.s a guy called Carl Schoenfeld was the guy who was running Yuckadoo Nursery. In the early 2000s, he happened to notice that there was a very different looking agave in his nursery. And he surmised that this had actually hybridized with the Manfreda next door. And that first variety was released in 2004 and it was called Macho Mocha. And a lot of varieties have followed on since then. It actually was a guy called Tony Avent, who runs Plant Delights Nursery in the US. Great plantsman, some of the most unusual plants in the world. He got hold of that first mangava and was obsessed. 
And he actually was working with a guy called Hans Hansen, who worked at Walters Gardens in the US, and he passed them to him to propagate, and Hans actually got the bug, and he started propagating himself. He was hybridizing, and we've mainly got Hans to thank for the 20-plus varieties that we now have in existence and are slowly trickling in to being on sale across Europe, which is fantastic. So I've got a couple in here now. Um, oh, I'm not too sure what the varieties are. I think one of them is Pineapple Express, which has got lots of little spots and kind of ribbles down the foliage. It's an amazing looking plant. They, they look completely alien, but I love them. Also got, I believe, Lavender Lady, which is a really, really nice variety. It's a more tender variety, so it's perhaps the best one to use as an indoor plant. And this has a lovely kind of purpley silver leaf. Very hard to explain. These are just amazing plants, though. The rosettes are perfect. They're upright, they're strong, and they're a real talking point. So growing your mangava is pretty easy. Make sure that you've got enough space for the plant to grow, because as I've said, there's lots of different varieties. They all grow in very different ways. Some of the foliage can be a little bit brittle. So if you're going to move the plants around from time to time on a patio, just take a little bit of care. But at the other end of the scale, some of the foliage can be a little bit sharp and dangerous. And a lot of that comes from the agave part of the genetics. So it's a fascinating family where almost all the siblings look different. It's a really strange family. Easy to grow though. You want to give them the most well-lit position possible. So sunniest part of your garden or sunniest room in the home. And whilst they're drought tolerant, if you water them a lot, if you give them copious amounts of water, they'll actually even grow quicker as well. So there's a lot of benefits to this plant. Obviously, with this appearance and the spines and the fawns that some of the varieties have, it's kind of rabbit-proof, deer-proof. You know, this is a durable plant for your outdoor space, whether that's jazzing up a rockery or planting a whole gravel border or just mixed patio pots as well. So there's so much potential for this plant. And, and it's probably the first time there's been a new introduction that is as good to use as a house plant as an outdoor plant. So I see two very specific markets for this plant. Where did I first see a mangalva? Oh, I'm not sure. I think it was perhaps through my contact with Plantip, which is a European plant licensing company. And there's a guy who works there called Peter Van Rysen, and he kind of ran up to me at this trade show, and he's always showing me these new varieties on his phone and his in his private Dropbox. <laughs> so we actually saw these pictures of Mangava and he said, this is the next big thing because xeriscaping is a real trend, which is gardening without the need for water or irrigation. So this is a completely drought tolerant plant, easy to grow. The range is very interesting because some are hardy and some are a little bit more tender. So from the moment I first saw them, I knew they had a great future. And somehow I started to get involved with the promotion of them. And Peter actually asked me to model with the plants for some of the first promotions that we did. So if you look on the internet, you'll find some great pictures of me lying in a bed of mangava and lots of different poses. So it's a bit of fun, but it got a lot of energy behind this variety. You know, you have to pr promote plants in very different ways these days. So we were gearing up for, you know, social media kind of cool shots, to suit this very cool plant. 
Michael Perry. So, that's it for this month. For more on everything in this episode, you can of course visit our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash The Garden Podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Chris Young. Chris Young.